Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack those topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. In this episode, we'll continue to explore the very broad topic of equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI, as it's named by some. As we've heard for many, the topic understandably focuses a lot on those marginalized groups, which some might identify as different from those in power or authority because of the way we see skin color or gender. But what about those differences we can't see? What about mental health conditions or diagnoses? Are those differences which aren't a function of mental health, but rather how brains may be wired differently or atypically? Many listeners may not relate to the term neurodiversity, but you would likely recognize labels like dyslexia, autism, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. And while these conditions occur inside people, they nonetheless often express themselves visibly through behaviors and social interactions, which those who are neurotypical may interpret differently, and which in turn can lead to other outcomes. And before you dismiss this as a fringe issue, these conditions are more common than many might have guessed like one in seven, and then consider that most of these conditions and those people with them are going to enter our workforce, including our health workforce. And as a parent of a neuroatypical son who himself was struggling to find his way in life, hardly a day goes by where I don't wonder about how he'll be accommodated or shamed in a future workforce as a result of his own ADHD. So this is a topic that hits very close to home for me and whether you have a member of your family or a coworker who is neurodivergent, I'm sure this episode will resonate with many of you as well. To help us all understand and learn about this, I'm very pleased that Dr. Bill Howitt accepted the invitation to join us on this podcast today. Dr. Bill is a founder and CEO of Howitt HR and refers to himself as a behavioral scientist with a keen curiosity for how employees and employers can work together to reduce mental harm and promote mental health in the workplace. Dr. Bill is on the Canadian Standards Association, the OHS Standards Steering Committee, and the chair of the CSA standard around the management of substance-related impairment in the workplace. Respected internationally, he is also one of Canada's top experts on workplace psychological health and safety, which has also led him to be a co-creator of the Psychological Safe Workplace Awards. He's a regular contributor to several blogs, newspapers, including the Globe and Mail, and has published over 50 books on these topics. And he is a sought after speaker on mental health, wellness, and psychological safety. Hi, Bill, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Thanks very much. Your, your introduction brought chills to me. I never realized how much I wanted to do this podcast till I actually, in real time, listened to you. So thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Um, and yeah, really... Thank you as well. I mean, I was reading through uh, LinkedIn the other day and I saw your post on the topic and it was a good reminder for me that equity, diversity and inclusion applies to so many people that we might not otherwise consider. So I know you're very public in sharing your own story and journey with ADHD. So I was wondering if we could maybe start there um, so that others here might re relate to what that means. Yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. I think one of the things I'm going to start off with is, is being a you know, a 59-year-old white male with a lot of education. I think a lot of people see me as an old white male. <laughs> I don't think I'm that old, but I feel like <laughs> I, 
it's kind of there's a there's a standard. I understand there's a lot of privilege that comes with who I am too and what I've done. But the part that I've had to struggle with for many, many years and, and neurodiversity, I'm excited about unpacking this because I know if it wasn't for my resilience and my support systems, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. I'm the kid who started his life off in a foster home. I'm the kid who was adopted. I'm the kid who failed grade two. I'm the kid who actually had to watch all the friends go ahead and not understand why I was not good enough. I'm also the kid that went to class every day and tried as hard as I could to learn and couldn't learn. Now, back in the 70s, when I went to school, my mother, who was, uh, you know, at the time, not an academic person at all, who didn't know a whole lot about it, but she was smart. And she figured out early days that I had a form of something that she didn't quite understand because she knew I was bright, but I couldn't read and write the same. And I wasn't able to enunciate words. I wasn't able to pick up music. So in around the age, you know, grade two or three, they started to figure out that I had auditory and visual dyslexia. And again, back in the early 70s, I, you know, if you said you were a dyslexic child in the school system, there wasn't a whole lot. There was some empathy, but there wasn't a whole lot of how to help mm -hmm. other than traditional learning methodology, staying the same system. And, and then for myself, because of that, I, through the public education system, uh, because I showed up every day in class, my parents were safe, they had me involved in all kinds of sports that kept me distracted and kept me involved and kept me building my self-confidence, which was very low, by the way, because everyone else could learn. And my concept of, I never really saw myself as my grade two teachers told me one time that I'll be a good farmhand because I'm a big kid, don't worry about it. Ouch. That kind of stuff sticks in your head mm -hmm. and it has a profound impact on who you are. And because you mispronounce words and you can't speak like other people. And then the ADHD part, we didn't really quite understand what that was till around grade seven because impulsivity started to happen because I process things extremely fast and then I get bored very, very quickly. And the reality was that between my learning disability of the auditory and visual and my ADHD, I barely got through the public education system. And I got through it basically as functionally illiterate, reading probably to grade seven, grade eight level, barely. But because I could play sports and I ended up at a university called Acadia University, where mm -hmm. I was, got to go have the opportunity to play football, and I was, you know, I think we don't come with signs. I think that's what people don't realize. You, you know, you, there's not a sign that says anything. And I didn't even know how to actually articulate what I had. My life changed at Acadia University two weeks into my season, football season. I had made the football team as a rookie. They just won the national championship. You know, and I was never a really great football player. I was just kind of a plugger, good enough to, you know, to ask to play university. But two weeks into it, my one particular professor walked up to me who actually taught the special needs part because I was doing physical education. I'd sit in the front row, and I, but I never had books in front of me. Or I never had notes. I just sat there. That's how I always learned. And she said to me, she goes, um, can you tell me how you got to Acadia? And I kind of said, you know, at the time, you know, I, I, I had a car, but I wasn't really proud of it. So I just said, um, I said my bus. And she goes, no, I'm not asking you how you got here physically. I want to know how did you get to Acadia? Like, how did you get in? 
like because my GPA was probably a whopping 50 something. I said, I don't know. She said, you're, you're an athlete, are you? And I go, yeah, I got, she may on the football team. And I go, yeah. And she goes, well, you know, you actually need to pass school to be able to play football. Have they told you that yet? And she goes, and I go, no, no, I'm just, I'm learning. I'm, I'll work hard. I promise I'll work hard. That was always my thing. I'll, I'll be here. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. She said, well, Bill, I don't know how you got in here, but I've been watching for the last week and I'm quite sure that you're ADHD and you're dyslexic. We accepted you. We are now going to accommodate you. It's our responsibility. At that point, then she pulled in the deans and all the powers of the be and had uh, a, a, a professor who was instrumental who became vice president of academics. They put in an accommodation plan in and started to help me learn how to learn. And my journey to get to where I am right now started from that one conversation where they started to teach me how to learn and Landmark East happened to be down the street and that's all based on Dr. Drake's work and how to actually learn. And so what I can tell you though, Dale, as we get into this, and we'll ask all kinds of questions. I wanna make sure the listener is hearing this. I'm someone with eight degrees, a postdoctorate, and I still get nervous when I send an email. I'm a person who, when they speak, or even now, knowing that I live like Archie Bunker, the you know the land of malapropisms, <laughs> you know, like it's it's the the amount of um, compassion for differences our society is a threshold's pretty low, because the expectation is is that someone like me should be able to perform and regulate at a level that's a, like someone else, whatever that's something else is. And I think that's where I really am grateful that the great work you're doing around creating space to be open for the possibility that a neurodivergent employee under human rights has the exact same rights as someone else that the employers have a duty to be inquire and start to seek to understand. Because I can't imagine how many people their performance management mm -hmm quality work gets marked down because they're just trying to process the world differently. And I don't know. And it doesn't mean it's bad. It's just differently to some standard that they could never do. But I will say something to you. I, I defy a neurotypical to do what I do because how much I process and how I see the world. So I, we all have strengths. And I wish we would be able to stop thinking that we all have to be the same. Yeah, and so thank you for you know sharing. I think so vulnerably and openly. I think about that, and you know, I, I think hopefully it gives people a, a, an opportunity to pause and be empathetic to those they may see around them that maybe they've judged differently or inappropriately. Um, maybe to further help them sort of see this so you you've described you know what it's like for you to have grown up and and entered into sort of the academic space but just in terms of our our broader workspace or workforce how does this neurodiversity sort of manifest itself what kind of behaviors might people see in a in a workplace where you know we you know we have more traditional expectations perhaps about performance or behavior what is what would be some of those telltale signs appreciate you know everybody's different and we're not talking about one condition um but maybe just to help sort of 
shed some light on that? Sure. I think it's worth just pausing. I'll get to that. I think it's worth what is neurodiversity? Mm-hmm. Let's not assume that the audience knows. So basically at the core, a simplistic layperson definition is a person that's not neurodiverse or brain functions different and considers than, than someone who we call typical. And the most common types are dyslexia, dysphrasia, uh, uh, what's called autistic, an autistic disorder, which is a, a not autism, it's another form. Mm-hmm. We have attention deficit, we have a hyper, uh, uh, hyperactive disorder. So we have ADD, we also have ADDH, and we have autism. And you're going to have a percentage of your workforce today from a population health perspective will be. So you're going to have more learning disabled in your population and more ADHD in your population that you may have autism or what's called holistic disorder. So that's first of all is understand that there, these are all disorders. Now, one, my major disorder that impacts my life is ADHD. That's an executive function disorder. It's not an emotional disorder. It's how I actually process the world. And so someone who's ADHD without being medicated, their frontal lobe where there is, they, they may not have the same amount of dopamine that's traveling to help signals and transfer and try to process and track and, and how they engage and interact with the world, same amount of, so why we give folks with ADHD a stimulant is to help activate that frontal lobe so that there's those connectivities. My biggest impairment as an adult by, without any question, until I became medicated, and last year, I'll tell you why I became medicated, if you're interested, changed my life. Mm-hmm. The single most important thing I did is because I was a doctor and I was seeing patients and, you know, it's, this stuff's great for everyone else, but I'll just figure it out because I have some type of superpower in my head. And I live with that silly internal dialogue and I'm being, you know, put hard on myself, but by far medication was the biggest difference because what I, I would do the same thing. I go, how did I get myself in trouble? Because pause for a minute. What a mental illness is, is intrapersonal disruption of thoughts and feelings that can result in interpersonal disruption. Now, what creates my disruption of my thought and feelings in my case is organic. It's how my brain is actually structurally wired and processing. When you get overwhelmed or overloaded, being an ADHD male, I will have what's called visual recall that I lose in real time in vivo. What does this mean is, Dale, if you and I walked into an office and we're talking to Charles, our, your lovely support person here, if you said something to Charles that created upset for him, you would store that and go, oh, well, when I get in this conversation, if I say that to Charles, that could be upsetting. You, you recall that. And in, in, when you're stressed, you have access to that recall. Mm-hmm. Well, well, someone like myself, what we miss is the air brakes to remember in the exact same situation, if you, your impulsivity can result in a consequence. And what we, it's the tension buildup. And if I told you the number of relationships in my life, I've lost or I disrupted because of impulsivity of saying something that's either self-protection, that's all done in my midbrain out of fear, mm-hmm. and not having visual recall. 
And what medication has done for me and my impairment now, it's not perfect, by the way. You see, there's no cure for this. It's symptom management, right? Yeah. So, I, you know, instead of being like, you know, you might blurt nine, you know, one out of 10 times and ADHD might blurt eight or nine out of 10. <laughs> but medication is I got myself down to a solid three. Like I'm not, I still can lose visual recall. And that's why I've spent a lot of my time reflecting and doing journaling and trying to evaluate. But what can come off, and I think this is important as we start to get into this, I can, if you don't know me, in those moments, I could appear to be cold, not caring, a disruptive, because as I'm pushing away, keep in mind, a part of it is I spent my entire life thinking I was stupid. See, why do you get eight degrees, Dale? It's not for any other reason. You're trying to constantly improve to yourself that I can learn. Mm -hmm. And for me, it took me till I was 55 years old to finally say, okay, you, you know, there's no parades and no, you're good enough as you are. And I, and that's, I really wanted to give you that little lens, because if you start to realize as we get into what you want to know, some of the behaviors and we can bounce it around, some of the, the big one around neurodiversity is how they process information. And it's nothing to do with their intellect. It's not, it's not, this is not an IQ issue. This is a process. And they may see things different on the edges that other people don't see. Where everyone else wants to go A, B, C. And they, they might say, I don't have to go to A, B, C. Let's just go to E. So they think to see the world different. They process. And so because of they don't, aren't a linear thinker perhaps all the time, and they can be multiplex, is sometimes people say, well, they, you know, we can't follow that person. But then two weeks later, people get, get caught up and they go, oh, that was a great idea. Uh, the other thing that can happen to them, they're easily, they can be distracted. They can, you can create confusion um, because they got to remember, you're trying to figure out how they're processing the world, like the listening to them. We're always trying to figure out how to interpret like nonverbals for me or, you know, I, I understand nonverbals really well, but when my affect is higher, I'm, I'm not so good at picking up nonverbals. It's a part of my condition. Um, the context of, that we sometimes want, like a, if you take a person with some type of, like has a neurodiverse person and get them into a, a conversation and ask them to kind of respond back and forth, that can be a lot of pressure. Versus if you wrote down a question and said, can you take some time and write out what you're thinking? So they have time to track and sequencing their thinking versus actually feeling they have to do everything in vivo. So it's the context and the space we allow for communication that, that we, especially when the stakes are high and there's some anxiety, because under stress, it's common for lots of us, and I can't speak for all of us, to be hypersensitive. Because mm -hmm. we're actually trying to figure out, like it's like two languages, Chinese and Japanese, a lot of the time, and all of this is done unconsciously. We're trying to interact with folks. So if you can protect, a, you know, like gossip or teasing, that, that, could, that, can, that can be innocent and good intention, but it can actually be very devastating. It's because if you live like I did, you, you're, you're constantly told by society that you're not good enough. And I'll, I'll give, you, give you a story. When I worked in Wall Street, 
and I was all the way up to a chief of staff. I wrote an email once where a senior person, I won't say who, came over and said to me, where did you get your PhDs in a popcorn box? The CEO happened to hear. CEO does this and the door got shut. CEO wasn't a screamer. What the CEO said, did you know my two children are ADHD? The ones that has dyslexia? He said, no, no, no. Did you know how hard it is for them to process the world every day? And because of course this person, senior person started to have a whole lot of empathy for the CEO and their child. Go, Would you imagine if someone started to pick on them because of their impairment and they're trying to process? They have other talents. My kids are really good. One's a musician. He got him in and said, okay, so by the way, Bill is auditory and visual dyslexic. And what you just said to him, how do you think he feels right now? That banker came out, walked over to me and was mortified, had no context. And now, in fact, in my emails, I put, I'm dyslexic. There's going to be some typos. And the reason that is, is because many people without realizing have a lot of judgment around the perfect word. You got to be able to spell perfect. You have to be able to write perfect. You have to speak perfect. I'm never going to be able to do that, but I think I'm qualified to say I can write. I've written university textbooks. I've written, I've done a bunch of, like I'm, I feel I'm qualified to write, but I will never be able to write a sentence. And I think it's important why I'm glad you gave me this platform. Dr. Don Little saved my life because he said to me at Acadia University, he was head of curriculum for special learning at the province of Nova Scotia and had been at New Brunswick. He said to me, Bill, my son, he said, I want you to understand something. You'll never be able in entire life to write a sentence like anyone else, but you will always be able to construct a sentence and have someone edit it. So you outsource your editing for the rest of your life and forget it about it. <laughs> and that's what I've done. I've had mm -hmm. the same editor for 30 years. I don't know. We've done, he told me the, he told me the other day, I think we've done like literally almost 800 articles or something silly like that. It's, it's actually closer to 70 books, all kinds of stuff. I just want to give people the understanding is, is even though you create the illusion in society, you have some credibility you're constantly being pulled down by a set of standards that we will never be able to live to. So it raises a, you know, an interesting question then based on some of, you know, your, your anecdote, um, which is, I mean, do you think it, like, does it compel a person who is neurotypical to announce that to let other people know that they have special needs or um need different accommodation right that they write to to the point about the uh the vp that you know that you met on, on wall street he didn't know that but if he'd had known that would that have changged right so i guess how do you guard against that and and the other you know, I, I, ways I around it I think that's a great question. So I've, you know, I've, I mean, if anybody looks at my bio, they can see I've got some pretty good jobs in my time. Every job interview, I tell people I'm ADHD, I'm visually dyslexic, and this is the accommodation. So people hire me as executive, though they have to give me a, a professional EA with amazing writing skills. They know they will be hiring me, plus they'll be retaining my uh, editor. 
they also know that I will tell them. And sometimes I'm not going to think like you are. So if you're looking for someone who's going to agree with you all the time and conform, I'm not going to be your person. I'm going to have a point of view and I'm going to say what I think. And my style is, and sometimes I can get caught in a loop when I'm passionate about something and I can be pushing really, really hard. However, when you pop me out of my cycle and smile and nod and, and give me a little bit of space and say, great, thank you. And then I'll come back to come back to you. But I, I, I want people to know what they're signing on for. And, and even though you tell people that, I don't know if they always understand. That's what I'm really learning as I get older is that if I came up to you, Dale, and, and said, how are you, and Dale, you just said, yeah, I'm good, Bill. I want you to know I have an anxiety disorder. What do we do most of us? Oh, Dale, that's it. We don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to behave? But if we took this, in, if we went from an occlusion perspective and became curious yeah. and realized we could have some implicit bias and started to have some compassion and then started to ask, understand. So if I start dysregulating, because my nervous system is, is being able to have some tools to be able to start to know how to pace with me and say, you know, you know, basically how to interact. So I would say to you 100%, yes, disclosing that you have a disability, I'm a big advocate. May, some people may disagree because of the poppy syndrome. Like I, I'm sure that, I mean, I taught, did work in the UCLA school, medical school when I did my postdoc. I understand the healthcare system a little bit, I worked with a whole lot of different, I understand there can be some not, you know, there's different personalities and different hierarchies and uh, things we may or may not want to talk about. I'll leave that to you. Mm -hmm. But the, the reality is I'm a big advocate that we, if we're ever going to get there, we need to be able to tell who we are. But the part that's missing around stigma is teach, having the course to teach the person neurodiverse how to self-advocate and then mm -hmm. teach course on the other side how to help support to get the potential so you have someone like me without I, and I feel I'm a, I think I'm a very creative person I think I'm I got a whole lot of things I can do I've I think I have my super talents ADHD it's my superpower but it's also my big liability mm -hmm. right but if we can actually start getting those primary skills of how we can learn to communicate and where it's safe to go back and forth that you can say hey, bill you just talked over me again and they go, that's okay i just wanted did you know were you aware that happened oh, okay sorry dale okay no it's okay i'm, I'm just can i got the word in now like it's creating that space where my, if we're both working to get the north star like great patient care or you know a great culture there's going to be moments, those interpersonal moments, because of intra, intra personal disruption, that I think that's where we have to help people navigate. And they can't have a, they don't have a snowball chance and heck to navigate it if they don't have a clue how to communicate or to inquire through creativity, compassion, and consistency, continue to show up with a little bit of tolerance, a little bit of patience, and you're going to be able to get a lot of out of people, in my opinion. 
So given the superpowers that you sort of describe and, and those different strengths that some people are going to bring, do you think that healthcare as a sector, as a as an industry, is more accommodating or wanting of those kinds of workers? I mean, do you find more, do you, I mean, do you, or would you speculate, I guess, maybe as much as you may not know specifically, but do you speculate that there would be more neuroatypical uh, workers in healthcare and what would draw them and create that space for them or not? I would say, I would like to use this without having a done, I'm a scientist too. So I would say without any scientific data, I'm going to assume that the healthcare has one is seven. I'm not going to assume less or more. I will also assume based on population health, when I look at, you know, if I look at different populations around there, you know, for example, their physical health, their uh, profile for mental health, that the healthcare sector does an amazing job. Like what, I mean, the, what they've done in the pandemic and continue to do is like, it's incredible. I don't even understand if the average person in Canada has a clue how fortunate we are for what they've done and what they continue to do. The consequence of that, my concern is, is that, is that the, a lot of the energy and attention isn't taking care of others. As a doctor who saw patients a long time, the pandemic by far was the best thing that ever happened to me. It's because it got me off the road. I had to look in the mirror of my own physical health. So I lost 30 pounds. I'm not seeing as many patients. I'm not running around as much. So the self-care piece is hard when you're, when you're actually serving others. And so there may not be as much awareness or tolerance, I'll leave that to you to say, is to understand peer-to-peer, -peer, have space, because the stakes are really high to take care of people in high need or high crisis, or that's what their training's for. Um, and I don't know how much is actually really done in regards to putting in strategies for healthcare workers around, not only talking about inclusion, and neurodiversity is a part of it, and mental health and it is to actually learn how to mobilize it day to day, because it's habits that have to be developed. So I guess maybe putting it another way. So if we accept that, I mean, healthcare is a complex adaptive, right, industry or system, set of systems, um, does that is that more attractive or for uh, a neurotypical person or is it more threatening to their success? I think for some, it may be hard because of credentialing. Mm -hmm. get in. Like for example, I always wanted to be a psychiatrist but I couldn't get through some of the courses. I always thought I, so I ended up taking the path of least resistance because some of the sciences I just couldn't do or couldn't see things because I, mm -hmm didn't see multi-dimensional different things. I couldn't get the molecules and, 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 I, and the other thing is I couldn't pronounce the words, right? Is that's one of the things I'm working, my team is working on with me and I'm working with a, trying to get support from an elder, how to actually do, because uh, uh, I'm really respectful of First Nations because they're one of my first master practicums. But what's terrifying to me is not is the land acknowledgement, but I can't pronounce the words. And I'm almost in tears. I can't pronounce the words. So I'm sitting here. So I'm, so I'm refusing to not say I can't do it. So I'm going to come up with my own neurodiverse way of doing it to be respectful, but to have the courage to be able to do it. So for me, 
they're, I'm going to hallucinate, Dale, there's probably a lot of people who, if they could learn to, how to spell, because I don't have any phonics, everything I have is photographic. So they may not because they couldn't enunciate the words or they couldn't do it. That could have been a major barrier to them. But I will say there could be lots of folks like me that still, you know, I'm sure there's lots of ADHD doctors and lots of doctors with dyslexia. And I know lots, by the way, that, you know, maybe they went to different schools. I know some friends that went to the Caribbean, had different experiences in the Caribbean to get through because they could get through down there and they had easier than up here or they went to different countries to get through the system because it was more applied versus classroom. So if I, mm -hmm. if I could have done all mine applied, I think I could have been a really good psychiatrist uh, because I have, once I learn something, I have a pretty good photographic memory. I just got to get this, got to get the thing in there. Uh, but I would, I don't know. And I, I, I would imagine some of your audience, I'm sure that someone's listening is an expert in neurodiversity in the healthcare, and they would have a great point of view. But I would say for some, it could have been a barrier for them. And, but I don't think one thing for sure, I know I went into helping others to serve. So I think whether you're neurodiverse or not, if that's, a, you, you don't, you still can have that as a value. And that value and that belief system of what you want to contribute is really, I think, where it starts. And then do you have the tools? Like not everyone can slam dunk a basketball, Dale, so they don't get to play. Not everyone can skate. You can try really hard. You may just not, so there's a certain standard to become a, like one of my dear friends is a head of heart surgery at Cleveland. Five hospitals, the guy's a genius. He does, you know, he's trained at Stanford and he does heart transplants and we're good, good buddies and we do work together. But he's, like he, he, his command of language and words and like, I, like it's an awe, but I, I can't do that. So I think that's a part of it. I think there's a part where you get pushed against the wall. You can only get, I think, accommodated so much, right? Like you have to be able to figure out through your accommodation how you can actually be functionally effective. And I just, and same thing, I could never learn French mm -hmm. or, or music. You know, I tried to do both. Can't do it. Singing French is not on the table then. No, <laughs> but, but luckily my my uh, girlfriend's French, so I got her figured out. <laughs> um, so maybe just changing the lens on this a little bit, uh, Bill. Thinking about how accommodating our health system is to serving people on the other side of the uh the admission desk so to speak right so patients themselves who are uh, neuroatypical and interact with our health system how does that look i mean what are the challenges there and how's that going to get expressed it's a good question dale i'd like to i, I think to break it in two ways i think and, and i'll 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 answer what i think may be of value but steer me back if i if i go off track a bit when you said that, the very first thing I think is really important, because I'm thinking about the CHROs and the different people I have had a chance to talk to, I think there's a great awareness now about the, the desire and the want, the why and the what of to help healthcare workers and giving them the tools to help them with their experience so that they can provide the best patient care and help protect them from patients too, but also work with patients, work with each other. 
I think the challenge is between the what is the how. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a part of it is how do you mobilize the competencies that you're trying to get because you, information is useless, useless unless there's time for transformation and habit development. So I think that's one of my problems with the inclusion and all these great, great concepts. But if you look in the literature of DI, you know, heads of the number of them that quit because they're frustrated that there's not enough support in maturing and following up. And so I think the how is gonna be a barrier of figuring out how to create space for this to be a part of the job. Because I think learning right now with all the stuff we're throwing at people. So there's three types of work, Dale. There's project work, there's plan work, and there's ad hoc work. Your day-to-day -day job takes a lot of capacity in healthcare work. Mm -hmm. Then there's overtime, but then there's ad hoc work. You know, the things, the tasks that come up because of emergencies and all that kind of, Then there's project works, you know, by, giant technology, right? And all the stuff that hospitals, you know, quality control, audits, everything is going on. But then somewhere in there, when we throw new ideas, like we're talking today about neurodiversion, this is a, a neat concept, but it would, it would only take about a year or two to get this really into a system where the, the, the knowledge, skills, and habits for how to actually have these conversations for interpersonal interaction with themselves and with their um, patients, we could raise it the standard. Like if you think about going to school, we say it takes four years to get a bachelor's degree to get a basic level. Well, if we want to get people with a basic level in neurodivergence or workplace mental health, you need to create a curriculum to say, okay, that's what we're going to do this year. Score how we're doing. And then if you, if you, if you, some people might need to repeat year one, and then we go to year two, year three. I, I don't think we're thinking about the how. I think we're confusing initiatives and programs and policies with forgetting that ultimately what you're saying, Dale, to put my world, simple speak, what are the key performance behaviors I need to do to support patients who may be neurodivergent, the how, mm -hmm. and my, my folks, and what do I need to do with myself to ensure that I'm regulating so I can actually help co-regulate someone that's emotionally upset. So people that are neurodivergent that are upset or, or something, their neurology is turned off. If I don't know how to co-regulate and I react to them. And so in other words, if you, for example, your child, if your child's doing something you think is not, they shouldn't be doing this, like that's a counterproductive behavior. You need to go through your own dysregulation of you some, because some parents react to go, oh, can't do that. I get to get a regulating. Okay, now I got to calm. I need to step back. Now I got to give them space to get their emotions down. Mm -hmm. And then we have space. And then that may not be the time to have a learning conversation because they just went through a bunch of exhaustion and failure once again. And so what I'm trying to say to you, this is, this is where my frustration is living with this. This is not something that you just give an infographic or a three-hour seminar on. It's actually picking three or four behaviors that we're going to get really good at and becoming very, very clear that to be open to the possibility of, I know Dale's ADHD, 
be open to the possibility that if Dale's and I have a good rapport and the possibility that we can build enough trust, I go, everything okay today, Dale? And you might go, geez, I forgot my medication. Okay, cool. All right, that's cool. Because ADH medicine for me, I can't speak for anyone else who's listened to this. It's like diabetic medication. Because mm -hmm. it breaks for me, helping regulate biochemistry. So I think that's, I don't know if that helps or, or I'm adding anything of value to this or not for you. Yeah, but I, I think maybe if I sort of uh, say back a little bit of what I'm hearing as well, which is, and it's probably true on, on both within the, the workforce setting as well as from the patient side that in a, in a spaces of perhaps height, more heightened emotional sort of uh, contexts, right, that and you've got a health system perhaps that is trying to be very urgent in its behaviors and, and time oriented and that that can perhaps play against those two things um, and that it may be better to sort of break those pieces into two parts or three parts or, um, you know, not to, to rush to, to do it all at once perhaps and, you know, that the the difficult patient that perhaps presents is maybe not a difficult patient, but a person who's dysregulated, I think in your words. Hi, Bill, uh, welcome back, or hope I'm welcome back um, for our listeners. We just had a massive power disruption here um, in Ottawa in the middle of a podcast recording, which is what you get to do, um, I guess, if you're not doing this at the CBC with a generator. Um, so I'm not sure where we entirely left off, Bill, but I think I was asking you about these high stressful environments or um, and or emotionally charged situations and about breaking those situations back down uh, for neuroatypical patients or coworkers. Um, and uh, maybe we could pick it up from there and see if I got some of that right. I think I think one of the big things is is that we were talking a little bit about starting to get some of the skills around the developmental skills that could help facilitate these types of questions and the conversations between each other. I, I think it comes down to Dale, you know, even as for us to kind of reset our conversation now, is becoming mindful of. Uh, what each other's roles are in these conversations would be probably a good place to be really, really clear is I, I think being, I used the word before earlier about being curious mm -hmm. and asking questions and, and seeking to understand because the two things you were saying right before we get cut off, I think it's really, really important. I like your example where you were talking to a patient and, and, and you, you may, the patient may be appearing, they're getting frustrated and overwhelmed by the information yeah. is how we chunk information and how we get feedback could be a part of the process is to actually ask the person, okay, I, if I'm, if I'm giving you instructions is it ask questions around how it's instruction I'm giving you what's what are you having a hard time understanding mm -hmm. so that we can start the process of getting into a point where we can start to leverage and start to, and to interact on those kinds of instructions of, of how we can start to help each other, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense, I think. And being curious, I guess, with our words as well as perhaps with our eyes, even as, as being reading other people's body language in a situation and um, seeing that you know, if there is a discomfort in that. So I'm wondering, you know, maybe there's two parts of this and, and how it might express differently. One is in those sort of patient examples, whether you know, clinicians may find that people have maybe are less compliant or with, um, you know, uh, treatments or regimens or things like that, that sort of have provided to them. And whether back in the workforce example, again, whether these kinds of conditions might also express themselves with challenges around attention to detail um, and other kinds of errors that, that would frustrate, um, you know, team members or, or uh, supervisors? Yeah, the kind of specific questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it starts with one of the questions with, that you could ask specifically around feedback is actually ask how you could give feedback, but actually understand what feedback is for and the types of feedback. Some, some feedback people can actually perceive as being punitive feedback for correcting or they're not, the feedback some, sometimes can be perceived as I'm, I'm not being good enough. And it's important we talk about this for a second. Yeah. This society has this concept around perfectionism and you need to be good enough. And if you're not good enough and you fail, that can attack your self-esteem. So sometimes I know myself, my experience was I thought I, I have to, if I make a mistake, you're caught in shame. And if you're caught in shame, you're, you have an inability to have empathy for yourself or for others. So part of feedback is actually continuing to reinforce the intention of what feedback is for. Feedback is for accountability and opportunity to learn. It's not to define you or your person or who you are or your skill set or your value, your competency. It's coming from a position of one person's frame or reference or their experience. And just because you may not be processing the feedback in, in, or understanding how the feedback actually works, I think it's important for us to be mindful that there's an expectation around being good enough and, and failure. And that can be a sensitivity for some folks. I know for myself, I can only speak for me, that, and then you start anticipating you're gonna fail and you start getting ready to fail. Yeah. And so and so you get kind of sensitive to it, right? And you kind of get, it kind of, it can, it, it can create a lot of self-doubt too. So feedback, how you define what, you have to spend time talking about it over and over and over what the purpose of feedback is as well, in my opinion. And also when you're providing instructions, be open to the possibility that how you're explaining something may be perfect. But it doesn't mean that the other person is perceiving it and doesn't mean anything is wrong with them. To be open to the possibility that you might need to do a visual graphic, you might need to chunk, chunk it down. You might have, um, you might speak fast where they might want it to go slow. You might be using words they don't understand. So create that space to be curious about what part of the instructions are they struggling with? And, and then feedback, because at your point, in a really agile, rapid stakes or high, making decisions and taking action is important, both for the client to make decisions and for the staff. And it, just being open to the possibility, not everyone's gonna be processing the same speed. 
so appropriate then to uh, I guess check for you know comprehension or you know understanding of, of instructions or things like that in a situation like that to make you know did you understand what I'm saying Bill or um, yep. do you have any questions or yes yeah if you can keep in mind what's called 738.55 seven percent of all communications words 38 percent is a pair of verbals and 55 percent is the nonverbals. And so if we're open to the possibility that be, when we're communicating our nonverbals can be confusing people uh, because we might be, you know, we might be rushing and our nonverbals could be from something else that we're frustrated with. We could be projecting frustration without realizing or even saying anything because we might say, I don't know what the, why they're defensive because this is what I want them to do, but you could be sending mixed messages too. So being to your point, what you just said is, just being mindful of how you show up. We have what are called mirror neurons. So like if I'm smiling, other people might smile. If we're really good at picking up other each other's um, non-verbals at an unconscious level. But what can also can happen is that if you're not really good at reading non-verbals, you can get quite confused attaching non-verbals to meaning and defining your value in that moment too. Yeah, makes sense. So, Maybe, I mean, you so that's maybe in terms of my next question here, then, um, you know, what can we do to make our healthcare workplaces, um, you know, more inclusive and accommodating for neurotypical, uh, well, workers in this particular case? Uh, I've, number one is in the inclusion conversation. Spend time is the DI initiative about neurodiversity. Take that on as an issue. Uh, ensure that you understand that neurodiversity issue a little is also you know, no different than anything else under human rights where there's protective class that we make sure that we protect. Our job is to learn and discover and, and, and make sure that we're not just, there's three buckets, there's awareness, there's education on it, and then being clear about the accountability, like what leaders need to know to be able to supervise and facilitate neurodiverse workers and give them specific training. Help when you onboard neurodiverse workers who self-identify to help give them a toolkit to learn how to self-advocate, ask questions, identify that I am, you know, I have auditory dyslexic or I have this. So they, have, they know there's not, that the organization is behind them. And then the third one is have your, um, your action of how you're measuring it in your um, assessments or your surveys. You know, if you're, if you're a neurodiverse worker, you know, identify, but ask questions. You know, if they say yes, and then ask them some, some their questions around their experience that, that the typical things and, you know, around being overstimulated, around people giving you space, around, you know, like it's the big one for a lot of us is just giving us time time to process and giving us a little space like you know instead of always having everything have to re respond verbally let them write things out and think about it not be not for everybody but it really works for me yeah or perhaps even time to process um, feedback if that's you know uh, going to be a trigger point for some as you've described yeah. um so sort of picking up on a couple of things that you said there for both in terms of those that I self-identify and also the role of leadership in this. So, I mean, 
we certainly don't want anybody, I think, listening to this podcast to sort of come away with the thought that they can start identifying neuroatypical people within their midst and start diagnosing and, and treating them differently. But is there a role, right, for a leader to identify that maybe a person has not self-identified, maybe they haven't been diagnosed with a condition, um, doesn't know that themselves, but you may be speculating that a person maybe is divergent. I, I don't know if that's appropriate or not appropriate, but where does th where does that fit within the role of, of a leader? My, my coaching is I wouldn't want leaders even touching that with a 10-foot pole. I would like leaders to be interested in what's called duty to inquire. Mm -hmm. So if they have somebody that, that that's struggling with a function or or something to get curious about, you know, well, instead of assuming it's just a performance management issue, try to seek to understand and some, ask some questions. So if you see someone, they're having a lot of typo issues or spelling issues and ask them, do they, you know, is typing and maybe they're just having a hard day. And is there anything, any challenges I need to know about that I can help you? Is there any accommodations I need to give you to support you? And if the, if they say yes, you know, and then it seems reasonable, I think this is where I think the, the education of leaders, if someone says they're dyslexic and they're struggling, do we really need them to go get a medical accommodation to get someone to help them, you know, with their emails or to kind of forgive them for an email and say, listen, let's have a deal. You send me emails. If I, if I can't interpret something and I get confused, how about I pick the phone up and call you to make sure I'm getting the meaning. And, you know, so I think we can go informal to formal. But I don't think we start ever doing any diagnosing. I think we just get curious. We have some compassion. We ask questions. And if someone's, you know, with ADHD, for example, and they're really struggling, and, and it's not our role to say, I wonder if you have ADHD. He said, no, you, through their education, maybe some, how it happens in an abnormal psych, someone might identify, geez, that seems like me. We never want to get to self-diagnosing. In fact, anybody that tells me, Bill, I think I'm ADHD, I said, well, you do what I did. You go through the full one day of ADHD testing. Make sure you're not on any type of medication, or ADHD medication, by the way. Mm -hmm. You go through all the testing and let the experts help you and get a true diagnosis. Let the, let the folks that do this type of neurodiversity testing help with the diagnosis and, looking, and help get some strategies. Because I think the one thing I would you said, Dale, I think is really important. I've been giving some strategies through my experience, but there's probably, you know, not probably, there is many, many other strategies available that are that that you may get personalized for you. And I think the key is what I've learned is get your strategies, your learning strategies, your interpersonal strategies, and 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 then start practicing them and, and accept it's not going to be perfect still. I mean, I still get myself in interpersonal disruptions in, 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 without even trying, by the way, Dale. Yeah, well, I think that's <laughs> true for most of us. But, <laughs> uh, but I guess, you know, I, I think your point is, is, you know, look, if a person's in your, in your workspace working with you and they're in their 20s, 30s, 50s, right, they have gotten to a certain level of, you know, or to that point, you know, through some kind of, strategies and and coping skills right so i think the, the opportunity is to be curious and ask them what is that you know that helps you to succeed in these spaces and how can you perhaps build those accommodations into the your particular uh, work relationship yes 100 um 
so just you know you, you know you, you alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation a little bit about you know the the fact that the pandemic's been going on and and uh, it certainly has put a lot of stress on our healthcare system and workers does that change you know the situation as well for those that are uh neuroatypical working in healthcare i mean has it has it impacted them differently I, I would say, I, to me, I think we're all human beings. We all have dealt with, whether you're a neurotypical or neurodiverse worker, I would say to you, neurodiverse workers, I have to use a lot more horsepower like to keep up sometimes. And, and so it can be exhausting sometimes trying to figure out how to process and interact like everyone else is interacting. Um, but I would say... I, I don't I don't think anyone gets a badge for things being any harder. I think this has been a challenging time for everybody. Mm -hmm. I just think it's I just feel this is a wonderful intersect of an opportunity where we're having these types of conversations that we can start maybe not things don't have to become perfect, but maybe we can just add this to the inclusion agenda a little bit more. And maybe we can spend a little bit more time when we're talking about workplace mental health strategies of how we actually prepare leaders to support neurodiverse workers. And then instead of just saying, hey, we have to support neurodiverse workers, give them practical, tactical strategies, and then give them some coaching and then some follow-up. And knowing that this is a plan, do, check, act approach, meaning which everyone knows that continuous improvement, there is no goal line. It's the same thing as develop leaders never become like, uh, you know, perfect. There's always things every leader can develop, every worker can develop. I, I just think since there is so many more neurodiverse are going to be entering the workforce too, you know, as we start to think about what's happening, um, it, it feels like it's a time now for us to get a little bit better at this. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, so maybe just a, a final word to you, Bill. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I have a, a son with ADHD. He's going to be 11 this weekend. Um, what would your advice be to him as he grows into this world and seeks opportunities for his own career? Hey, that's a great question. I get asked that a lot. And I think one of the big things is, is, is the tolerance for ourself and to realize that we can learn how to start celebrating who we are, who we're instead of versus who we're not. And that's really like, I'm, I'm a walking accommodation for my disability and my mental illness and all that other stuff, because I realized like I still have insecurities and I still know I'm not perfect and I still know I make mistakes, but I do know that for one thing, I'm more awake now than I was years ago. I wish, there was this, these kinds of platforms that these conversations were being facilitated when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. Start to actually normalize my experience, to normalize I, I can succeed as I am. No different than someone who's deaf, someone who's blind, an amputee, someone with diabetes. We all can learn to thrive when we learn how to live with who we are and not grieve who we're not, and then start becoming who we want to be. And, my, and then when we do that, we create the opportunity. So regardless, my belief, we are all of us are potentials unlimited. Like we can all 
achieve what we want to, but we're not going to do it without a little bit of support, a little bit of patience, and a little bit of tolerance. Wise words. So thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing the time with us today. And, and, and I do hope that it helps others to be more curious about those that are working, that they're working with and those around them and gives, uh, gives our workspaces a lot more tolerance and acceptance. So thank you very much for spending the time with us here, Bill, and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks, Dale, for having me. Keep up your good work. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the HQ, and I'm Dale Sherback, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.